This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I'm Fallon, and I am here with Mims. How are you? I am doing great. Fabulous. How are you? I'm doing great, too. Okay. Here we are. We are here. We lost all the the brightness, the sunny days, and it's been, like, cooler and cloudy and a little bit rainy. Yeah. So I don't know where all of the sunshine went, but I kind of want it back. I definitely want it back. I was outside today, like, what is going on here? Yeah, I took the dogs on a walk, and I was just like, it's like brisk out, and I was it not is. anticipating this. My friends said they still saw somebody with the freedom panels and the door, the front two doors off their Jeep. Like, they're just desperate Ooh. for the weather. <laughs> they're like, nope, I'm sticking to this. Or they just got their Jeep, and they're like, I'm doing it anyways. Yes. But I'm like, I want all the stuff off. I want the weather. Yeah. I respect the commitment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, me too, because it's too cold. Yeah, it is pretty chilly. Do you have any news today? Um, not so much news. I was going to ask you if you watched Our Father. I did not. Was it good? So good. I don't want to tell you much. And for people that are listening, I'm not going to spoil anything. But essentially what it is, is, um, like a docuseries on Netflix that covers this you know what i feel like okay a person uh donates air bunnies yeah their sperm when women come in that are trying to conceive that are having a hard time yeah um the person is inappropriate and the amount of times is inappropriate and a lot of these women well all of these women didn't know it was this person's sperm yeah they thought it was like their partners or like a donor of some sort and turned out it was just the specific person so crazy yes so So. the series is good though Ooh, yeah i think it's just like a a movie okay um so you'll be done in like an hour (laughs) but it's really interesting it's really well made and um the the kids are in it oh really yeah okay I have something. Did you ever listen to Up and Vanished? No. With Payne Lindsay? No. Okay. I was obsessed with this. Mm-hmm. I love his podcast. Mm-hmm. So his first series was on a woman named Tara Grinstead that had went missing in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And so he was looking into it, did all this investigating, all this. When it comes to the end of the season, someone confesses to her murder okay somebody that was not a suspect on the podcast somebody else his name is ryan duke Mm -hmm. and he was like quiet shy good guy Mm -hmm. and he said that 
I don't know, he just walked into the GBI pretty much and confessed, like, I did it. I can't live with it. I did it. Oh, wow. Claims he just broke in and killed her, and then his best friend, Bo Dukes, helped him dispose of her body at his pecan farm. They, like, had a bonfire, dispose of her body. Oh, God. Which, there was some kind of skeletal remains, whatever remained there, so they can confirm that 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 part actually did happen. Okay, okay. But following this confession, Mm -hmm. he recants. No, you can't do that. He says, which everybody thought, it was Bo. Bo was the violent one. Bo's told other people, like other girlfriends. That he did it? Yeah, that he did it. So, Ryan has been on trial. Mm -hmm. He has recanted his confession. His Mm -hmm. defense team is like, no, he didn't do it. He did participate in the disposal of her body. Right. But he's not the murderer. Right. Okay. So the verdict came back very quickly, and they found him not guilty of her murder. Oh. So I don't know what's going to happen now. This is, like, a huge thing. I just... Where's the other guy? The other guy wasn't charged with her murder. He was charged with... Accessory? Like, disposal of the body, and Mm. I'm not sure exactly what his charges are. Sure. I wonder if they're going to go after him now. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, that is really crazy. I mean, he's... I'm surprised he wasn't charged with anything, this guy, because obviously he was complicit in some... Oh, he was found guilty of oh, okay. something. Let's see. The jury said he was acquitted of malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault and battery. He was found guilty of concealing a death. Right. Okay. So that makes sense if he was only a part of... Um, Helping him bury her and disposing of her body. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so I hope that the other guy is at least brought in and charged with basically what he was going to get charged with. Yeah. It's it's all very crazy. Yeah. I that must have been know. eating him up, though, even if you... He said he didn't feel like he deserved to breathe after what he did. Well, I mean, you don't do that. No. Even if it's your best friend, you don't help people. And she had been his teacher. She was a teacher, oh. and she had been his teacher at one point. That sucks. So, I yeah. bet he feels a lot better getting that off of his chest. Yeah, I'm sure, especially being found not guilty of her murder now. Right. I just, yeah, I wasn't expecting it, to be honest. Like, I knew from everything that I had listened to that I didn't feel like he was, he was the killer. Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect the jury to go with it. Right. Right. Maybe they were just, the the defense was so compelling that they were like, you know, he was part of it, but he wasn't it. Yeah. Yeah, so if people are interested, they did cover the trial on Up and Vanished, and... That's really cool. Yeah, so I just, there was a two-minute thing today. It said, like, the verdict is in. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And then it was like, not guilty. I was like, what? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I had to share. Yeah. Because I'm sure some of our listeners listen to that too. For sure. Yeah. I love Payne Lindsay because he's just like so cute and innocent. Mm-hmm. But he like puts himself in all these crazy, dangerous situations investigating these cases. He actually does the investigating himself. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Like he's, he was the last season, he was doing a missing indigenous woman. Mm-hmm. Like out in Wyoming, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was out on the reservation and meeting with people he does 
he's wow yeah and he records it and like makes it into content too yes wow he records all the interviews and everything Mm -hmm. originally when he did tara's case he was going to do a documentary Mm -hmm. and he's like well i'm gonna start i'm gonna do this podcast Mm -hmm. while i start my documentary company and then the podcast just blew up and then like him bringing all the attention to the case helped crack the case wow i mean that must be so amazing to be like a part of something that turns out to be you know so great yeah especially since people made fun of him a lot because he's like for what? Because he seems kind of like a frat boy. Oh, well, who just, cares? Like, cute blonde hair, blue yeah. eyes. Yeah, like, just not like an, he doesn't have any background in investigation or journalism. Right, like, he has a background in film, mm-hmm. and he just they people act like he wasn't a real podcaster. Oh my god, none some of us are. Po- some people still act like that. I'm like, he's out here solving crimes. Guys. Yeah, like he literally <laughs> solved a crime. Like, give him some credit. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of us don't have a background in this, or you know, right. Uh, so that doesn't mean that we can't do it. <laughs> like, right. here we are. Here we are proving we're, you wrong. We're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for good for him, and good for his podcast. That's awesome, and. Yeah. That's really crazy. Yeah. There's some... He has really interesting seasons, if you ever... I'm going to have to listen to I have run out of things, so (laughs) I'm going to have to. Okay. Um, One more thing. I wanted to remind everybody that we will be at the Dark History and Horror Convention on August 19th and 20th at the I Hotel in Champaign, Illinois. Um, there's going to be a lot of other people there. Uh, there's going to be some uh, panels and experts and some terror reading um, mm-hmm. psychics as well. Did not know that. Um, some indie movies. Uh, so it should be really fun. Sounds very interesting. We're well, going to have a good time. I was going to say, we're going to be there. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, it's not interesting even if we work. Yeah, that's true. But we're going to be there, so it's going to be even better. Yes, it's going to be way better. You get to see us. Yeah, if you guys ever wanted to meet us, mm-hmm. we're your very interesting. To come meet us in person. Mm-hmm. Can tell us your stories. Oh, yeah. Ask us questions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then we won't have to just be awkward. Right. <laughs> yes. So come see us. Yes. So, Champaign, Illinois, I Hotel, uh, August 19th and the 20th. Yes. All right, that's it for me. Okay. Who is first today? You are. All right. It's probably best that way because I'm going to go on a deep dive later. <laughs> Your story is going to go on forever. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> today, I am going to discuss the dark history of the Taliesin. Frank Lloyd Wright's property in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Oh my God. Are you familiar with this? Yes. You'd like, (laughs) yes. I've been wanting to do this one for the longest time, but it's kind of like a lot. Yeah. So I was like dreading it and dreading it because I know like I would have to put in a good amount of time on it. Yeah. So I'm kind of glad you did it actually. (laughs) All right. My sources today are crimetraveler.org history.com, washingtonpost.com, and the taliesinpreservation.org. So in case people maybe don't know, Frank Lloyd Wright is one of the most famous architects of all time. There is no doubt that he was a design genius. Mm -hmm. However, not everything in his life was all sunshine and roses. 
Frank had a lot of relationship drama. <laughs> like that you call him Frank. It's like, <laughs> listen here about Frankie. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so today I'm going to tell a story that some people tried very hard to keep covered up for a long time. Yeah. Because I didn't know about this. Oh, yeah. Until I was researching like mm-hmm. famous Wisconsin crimes. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. This is very intriguing. Yeah, and well, that's really interesting because obviously he's a well-known architect um, here in the states and right. like you know, um, like across the world. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of publishing on him, and mm-hmm. but nobody knows about this horrific thing that happened, right. which is so interesting to me. I know it's crazy. So let's start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. In 1903, Wright was commissioned to build a house for his neighbor, Edwin Cheney, a businessman. And this was in Illinois that they were neighbors. Not long after beginning the work designing the home, Wright fell for Cheney's wife, Martha, also known as Mama, Borthwick Cheney. Mamo was a woman ahead of her time, so it's easy to see how the people around her would be enamored with her. Yeah. She was quite wonderful. She had a bachelor's and a master's degree from the University of Michigan. She served as a translator for people, and she was even a translator for one of the most famous feminist writers, Ellen Kay, who she became good friends with. And in addition to this, she also was raising two children. Right, so just like a badass bee. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. And then she found Frank. Hmm. Frankie. (laughs) (laughs) So, Wright falls for her, but at this time, he's also married. Right. And had six children with his wife, Catherine Wright. However, none of this really mattered to Wright and Mama. And they just ran off to Europe together. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just go. True love, I guess. I suppose. (laughs) Mama's husband agreed to divorcing and let her out of the marriage. Like, yeah, I guess you can run off with the neighbor. Right. I'd be like, this is escalated. I I think the next thing is to get divorced. Yes. But Catherine, however, she was not having it. She's like, no, we are not getting a divorce. Which I don't understand that type of mentality. Like, this person is that you're married to, is or whoever you're in a relationship with, is choosing mm-hmm. to be with somebody else. And, like, wouldn't you think that that's a sign that your relationship is not working? Yeah, I don't know if it was, like, religious reasons, or, like, I don't want society to look down on me for being divorced. Yeah. I'd rather be married and have my husband, like, off in Europe with his mistress. Publicly. Publicly. Yeah. So publicly. Yeah. So, Wright was like, I, we don't have to get divorced. I'm still going to have my relationship with Mama because that is what I want, and I do what I want. Yeah. So, in 1911, he decided to build a Taliesin, which was also known as the Love Cottage by the locals. Oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. The pair caused a lot of controversy when they moved to the property, as it was completely unheard of for a married man to be shacking up with his mistress so publicly. Like, they didn't deny their relationship at all. Yeah. They flaunted it. Right, right. It was definitely known by everybody. Yeah. Which seems crazy, too. Yeah. And I have a quote from the superintendent of the Iowa County Schools. 
They told the reporter, the scandal is bound to have a demoralizing effect on the school children of the community. It is an outrage to allow young men and women and boys and girls to grow up in the belief that a man and woman can go disregard the marriage bonds. The townspeople even called for the couple to be tarred and feathered. And when all of their protesting didn't make them leave, they asked the sheriff to arrest them. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm not that <laughs> upset about it. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know what you get by witnessing somebody getting tarred and feathered. Like, what kind of emotion do you get from that? I don't know. I was trying to do. Did they actually tar and feather people? In yeah, street? yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like a form of humiliation. How do you get the tar off? I don't know. I have no idea. Is it hot? Um, it could. <laughs> I have it a could. Lot of it could be hot. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I don't know. So Wright did not care about any of these things. He's just like, he's like, is. bring on the feathers. It is what it is. Yeah. He came out and said that a man of his genius needs two women in his life. Mm. One to be the mother of his children, Ugh. and one to be his intellectual companion, his inspiration, and his soulmate. Wow. He made a lot of people mad when he said regular people need to follow rules and people like him with high intelligence did not need these rules in order to live. Two women were necessary for a man of an artistic mind. That's a quote from him. To another reporter, he said, laws and rules were made for the average. The ordinary man cannot live without rules to guide his conduct. It is infinitely more difficult to live without rules. But that is what the really honest, sincere, thinking man is compelled to do. Mm, I don't like that he <laughs> put his wife in a box that only limits her to be a mother. Like, yes. she can be intellectual, she can be... She's your, probably somebody's soulmate. Yeah, exactly. And here you are, making her just the mother of my kids to tend to them and to take care of the house and whatever while I'm I have my own soulmate out here like no that's not fair and that's not fair that you mm-hmm. just cap her at that right but I do like his thought about not living with rules not just for intellectual people but right. I don't think we should be restrained by society's ideas of what we should do right I think if his wife would have been okay with it, they could have just had their polyamorous relationship and yeah. went about their business. Yeah. I mean, that works for some people. Yeah. But they, everybody's got to be... I think that Catherine loved it, though. No. I, like no. I said, I, they got to be willing. Yes, they have to be willing. So, after this, they just went about their lives at the Taliesin anyways. Mm. So, they didn't really care. On August 15th, 1914, however, things would change. Wright was in Chicago working on his design of the Midway Gardens. Mayma and her two children, 8-year-old Martha and 12-year-old John, were at the Taliesin with her. It's unclear if she had custody of them or if they were just there for the summer. Because I don't know if her husband got to keep the kids because... I mean, she obviously was doing shameful things. Right, yeah. (laughs) That day, it was incredibly hot, so they decided to go have lunch on the screened-in porch on the terrace. 
Inside, writes, drafters and laborers were inside eating lunch in the dining room, which was at the end of a 25-foot-long hallway opposite of the terrace. So at this estate, it wasn't just him and the mistress and the children. It's a 37,000 square foot house. Mm -hmm. So his employees were there as well. Like Mm -hmm. all the people, you know, back then they had to draft everything on paper by hand. So he had a lot of employees that did that. There were laborers that worked there, um, that built the house, that built other buildings on the property. So there's a lot of people there. Mm -hmm. And there was also... Two people, some people said they were servants, some people said they were employees. And that would be Julian Carlton and his wife, Gertrude. So Julian was the person, he did a lot of odd jobs around the property and would sometimes help out in the house if needed. And then his wife, Gertrude, was doing most of the cooking for the Mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. On this day... Uh, Gertrude did the cooking like she normally did. She prepared the meal for everyone, and then her husband told her to go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then this is the part where it's going to get more graphic, so people don't like to hear about murder. I don't know why you're listening, but... <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, this is where it's going to start. So little did anyone know that Julian had very different plans for everyone that day. After serving their lunch, he retrieved an axe or a hatchet, depending on which story you read, and got some gasoline. He said he needed to clean a rug. Like, where's the Mm. gasoline so I could clean this rug? Apparently you cleaned with gasoline back then? Uh, Yeah, I I think they use it as, like, a dissolvent. Mm. So if there was, like, some sort of grease or whatever, they would, like, use it to, I guess, break it down. That makes sense. And so Mama told him where the gasoline was and he went and got it and he returned to the terrace. And without warning, he started viciously attacking Mama and her children with his axe. So he murdered the three of them. He then poured gasoline on them and set them on fire. And the house is so big that the other people in the house didn't even hear them screaming. And you realize right. what was going on outside because mm-hmm. they were like 25 feet down the hallway. So then he returns to the dining room where the other people were with the door closed. He poured the remaining gasoline under the door and then lit it on fire. So one of the men reported something splashing under the door and telling the others, like, what is this? Right. Like, you, what, would, what would you think it would be, you know, if you heard splashing? Yeah. I wouldn't, my mind would not go to that. No, never. Mm-hmm. Like, just, that'd be so crazy. Yeah. No matter what it was, it'd be crazy. Like, yeah. why is something flying under the door? Yep, yep. Yeah. So, soon before anybody could figure out what was going on, the room would be in flames. The men, and there was also one 13-year-old there. It was one of the men's sons. They were trying frantically to escape the room because it was quickly engulfed in flames. Mm-hmm. One of the men, Herbert Fritz, managed to escape through the window despite his clothing being on fire. So when he jumped through the window, it let him out on a hill, and as he rolled down the hill, the flames went out, and he was able to escape. Right. So he just picked the perfect place to jump out. That would be my go-to, just 
jumping out of a window. I don't care if I'm gonna get mm-hmm. like scratched to bits. Like I'm not dying here. Yeah, I agree. I would have done the same thing. But then everyone else in the room also wanted to escape through the window. Mm-hmm. But Julian realized what was going on. Oh God. And he posted up in front of the window and swung his axe at the people, murdering them as they tried to escape. Oh, God. And only three people managed to escape. Herbert Fritz, David Lindblom, and Billy Weston. And Lindblom would eventually die from his injuries, too. And Weston's 13-year-old son was one of the people who succumbed to the violent attack. Mm. So he made it out, but his son died. And they ran, so they escaped, they run to the nearest house, which is a half a mile away. Can you imagine? Like, you just went through all this, now you have to run a half a mile just to get help. Right, and see if they would even help you. Right, because they hate them. Oh, that I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But they did. The townspeople, despite hating them, did rush to render aid, but they found everyone dead. Ugh. In all, seven people would die and only two people would survive. So after they realized everybody had died, they began looking for Julian. Eventually, they found him cowering in the furnace room. He had drank a bottle of muriatic acid and was barely conscious. Like, he clearly thought he was going to kill himself. Yeah. So... Due to his injuries from drinking the acid, he was not able to speak. Oh my god. Oh, that's so sick. So he could never tell anyone what his motive was. Right. And then he would eventually die (laughs) die of starvation after seven weeks. Holy guacamole. I didn't know that you can not eat for seven weeks. Me either. He was in jail for seven weeks when he died of starvation. Because he couldn't eat. Right. So, don't drink acid. Right. There were many theories as to why Julian suddenly killed everyone at the estate. His wife, Gertrude, said he had become increasingly paranoid in the weeks leading up to the murders, even sleeping with the axe next to his bed. Mm -hmm. Gertrude also confirmed that the pair had been let go by Mama, and they were supposed to be returning to Chicago that evening. So after this happened, one of the workers said, when asked why he would do this, they said, well, Mama fired them today and they were going to be leaving. That seems like a pretty strong motive for for this circumstance. Yeah. I don't think that I would fire someone and then let them prepare my food. No, absolutely not. That's why the rule of thumb is you always fire them at the end of the day after their work is done. I know this is, like, terrible, <laughs> but, like, no. yeah. It yeah. makes more sense. Or when they come in, you tell them to go home. Right, right. Because that'd be really awkward. At the beginning or the end. Yes. Yeah. Not like, you're fired, but please finish you're your gonna, shift. Yeah, you're going to finish up here, though. I, I trust you with beating me. With beating me. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. At most places, they call you into the office. They clear out your desk while you're in your meeting. And they yep. walk you out the door. Yep. <laughs> There's no coming back in. Yeah, no. They do that at my mom's job a lot, so. (laughs) You know, very efficient. Very efficient. (laughs) Like, all your possessions are in this box. Yep, you're good to go. I thought they only did that on the movies, but no, they do that in real life. Right. Have you ever done that to anybody? (laughs) 
Uh, no, I have not. That would be a little bit satisfying if it was somebody I didn't like, though. It would be. <laughs> so, there was also rumors of other workers directing racial slurs at Julian, and... Other people said that there had been a dispute between some of the workers and Julian in the last week. Something regarding the saddling of a horse. Mm. It sounds just like a lot of petty stuff was going on. Besides, I mean, racial slurs aren't petty, but like no. arguments about saddling a horse and... Yeah, maybe it was just uh, another uh, argument with the underlying problem of their race. Yes. So it anything like that. Anything that they did was just like wrong or whatever. Mhm. That's what it seems like. And of course others believe that this was some type of holy retribution for <laughs> the couple openly living in sin. Oh god. You know, God sent some kind of demonic angel to burn the place. Okay. It would make sense if it was just Frank and Mayma. Yeah. But it was like literally people that were just doing a job. Yes. And a child. Three children. Chil- okay, yeah. right. One that was like had nothing to do with any of that. Yeah. So that doesn't make any sense. No. It was terrible. So that once Wright was notified, he returned to the estate by train and they said when he arrived the house was still smoldering. Wow. And now I forgot the guy's name because I didn't add it to my story. But one of his relatives owned the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was there with him. And this man would go on to go to Tulsa and write a lot of horrible stories that added to the Tulsa race riots. Oh, geez. Which is really just the Tulsa massacre. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people think, like, this event was one of the triggering things that made him so racist. Oh. Because he saw, like, the families all murdered and burnt at the house. Right. By um, an African-American person. Yes. So, other people, of course, they just stuck with this whole crazy theory about all of this but right just decided you know things happen and i'm gonna rebuild Mm. so he went on to quickly rebuild the estate (laughs) okay yeah as if the fire never happened right as if his mistress soulmate right never died Mm -hmm. there with her children and while he was grieving he found a new love. Oh, God, yeah. Which was Maud Moriam Noel. And they gave the best description of Maud. They described her as a spiritualist and a morphine addict. Oh. All in the same sentence. Oh, wow. Like, That's a lot. She had to have been a character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, could you imagine being <laughs> addicted to morphine? That's, like, next level. Yeah. And, like, just being a spiritualist in this, like, super Christian time. Right. In a super Christian city where they think that angels are coming from heaven to abolish sin. No. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure they loved her. They're probably like, damn, we should have stuck with the other one. (laughs) Right. So the two started an affair. 
very shortly Mm -hmm. after Mama died. And at this point, Catherine has had it off. She's like, another one? Yeah. So she did grant right a divorce at this time. Good. Yeah. I I was like, good for you. Jeez. This is not a stand-by-your-man situation. It's not. I understand he was a genius, and I can see he was a great designer, great architect, but that doesn't mean that he was a great man. Terrible partner. Yeah, terrible partner. Mm Mm-hmm. So, the pair's divorce was finalized on November 23rd, 1923, and a month later, Wright married Maud. But the two had a very tumultuous relationship, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing the morphine addiction probably played a role. I would, yeah, I would have a problem with that. And Maud left him six months after they were married. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, but it did take them two years for their horrible divorce to be over with. Like, they had a very angry divorce. Angry and bitter divorce after their six, six months, months of marriage. Yeah. It wasn't even like that with his first wife, I bet. No. She's just like, God, you just have mistress after mistress. I'm over I'm it. I'm over it. I'm out of here. And this morphine person is like, no, this is going to be yeah. a long-ass process to do. <laughs> She's like, you're not getting rid of me that easy. Oh, jeez. So while they were separated, Maud and Wright, he met Olga, also known as Olga Vanna, who was also going through a divorce at the time, and she was a dancer from Montenegro. Hmm. The two would go on to fall in love, and they would end up having one daughter, and they would remain married until Wright died at the age of 91 in 1959. Mm-hmm. And she was 30 years younger than him. Damn. So she lived on after he was gone. And she is the reason that the stories were suppressed. Oh, wow. So she did everything she could to suppress the stories of the tragedy at the Taliesin. She is the one that got the Taliesin turned into a historical monument Mm -hmm. in 1976. And you can still go on tours there. And it takes two hours to tour the house. Wow. Just the house. So if you want to do the whole estate, it's going to be like a whole day adventure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they said, because somebody's written a book about the love affair of Mema and Wright. Mm -hmm. And they said she, Olga would be rolling over in her grave because she thinks she was was. the one true love. Right, right. She did get him to herself the longest if he didn't have mistresses elsewhere, which he probably did. He probably did. But they have things on the tour now that are regarding like the love cottage and they're just like if she knew about this that this happened after she died she would go crazy right right yeah so that's the interesting story of frank lloyd wright which i didn't know right yeah but all of his affairs yep yep and i didn't i honestly forget that he has connection here uh with this property here in wisconsin because he Mm -hmm. was mostly based out of Illinois so yeah I always forget that too yeah I think there's one in our area isn't there hmm I don't know I think there is mm-hmm. I would have to look I'm pretty sure yeah yeah I'd want to go and see this love nest me too we could go yeah I'm down all right good job thank you 
Okay, here we go. What do you have for us today? I am doing Peter Curtin, a.k.a. the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Or the Dusseldorf Monster. I got my sources from Cult of Weird, Wisconsin Frights, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and all that's interesting. So I really want to advise that there are mentions of sexual assault, murder, and animal cruelty. And this is going to be a two-parter. So I had a lot of information and I couldn't cram it all into one. So there is going to be a lot of... um, just craziness so it sounds crazy yes so this story is based off of germany however it made its way to ripley's believe it or not as an attraction in the wisconsin dells um so i wanted to cover this story it's it's really crazy um and i can't believe that it actually happened um and that it made its way to our humble state Uh, The connection and story was enough for me to want to do an episode on it. So here we are. Awesome. So I'll start with the connection before jumping into his story. Um, After, so it's kind of a spoiler, but after he was executed, uh, Peter's doctors uh, decided to preserve his head in order to conduct research on his brain. Uh, They wanted to study him as he was truly evil and his acts were beyond anything that the doctors in that area um, were, you know, just familiar with. And his behavior was so disturbing, they believed his brain had to be physically different from the average person. So his head was mummified then bisected to get into the brain and incredibly enough there was no forensic analysis that found anything to be abnormal with his brain which left people to think that it was not nature it was nurture Mm -hmm. um so peter's head came to the united states soon after the end of world war ii It became part of a personal collection of Arn Coward, an antique dealer in Waikiki. Uh, Arn Coward, who had been imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp in his homeland of Norway, uh, bought the first instruments of torture in 1946, and that was a pair of thumb screws. If you don't know what thumb screws is, uh, you can look that up in your own time. Uh, Arn started or stated in an interview that took place in 1975, a quote, it was mainly the desire to get something no one else could get. Sears will never have a torture wear department, and that leaves me with something exclusive. So Arn's collection included beheading swords, tongue tears, shrunken heads, chain mail gloves used to burn hands, a bone-crushing wheel, and that's just a few things that made up his collection it's a very creepy collection could you imagine like the spirits and energy attached to these things yeah yeah it would be too much for me i and i'm very sun i'm and probably you as well very sensitive to things like that so i would be too much yeah uh, he le- later then opened a museum to show off what was considered the world's most extensive collection of historical torture devices. And after his death in 1979, Arndt's collection was auctioned off, 
And then Ripley's, believe it or not, acquired Peter's head from Arne's estate in 1989 and decided to show it off in their newest auditorium opening in Wisconsin Dells in May of 1990. Currently, it can be still seen there if you find yourself in the Dells and want to see Peter's head spin on a swivel. It will be there. Oh my god. Yes. Uh, I didn't know that they had this museum there. mm Mm-hmm. Have you ever been there? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, But I feel like I would be interested in going now just because I have, you know, the story to actually put things in perspective if I do see that. Not just like, who the hell is this? (laughs) Why is there a head? Yeah. Yeah. So, Peter Curtin is infamous. Infamous? Infamously known for being a prolific serial killer and sexual sadist during May 26, 1883 through July 2nd, 1931 in Dusseldorf, Germany. Uh, Forensic scientist Carl Berg dubbed Peter as the king of sexual perverts. Wow. So this story is crazy and disturbing and overall spine-chilling due to the savagery he inflicted upon his victims' bodies. So, like, put on your headphones, go into a quiet room, and mentally prepare yourself for this, okay? Okay. And you're distracted, so (laughs) you can't go anywhere. (laughs) Um, So Peter Curtin, as many of these monsters, uh, did not have the best childhood. He was born into a poor and abusive family and... So, I'm going to preface this right now. Oh, this is based out of Germany. Mm-hmm. A lot of German names. I might not be very good at saying them. German names are hard. Right. So, I'm going to do my very best. Yeah. So, an abusive family in Molheim M. Ren on May 26, 1883. He was the oldest of 13 children. Mm. However, two of them died at, the, at an early age. Peter's parents were both alcoholics. And then picture this, 11 children along with two adults living in a one-bedroom apartment. Oh, my God. Where do you go? I don't know. I don't know how they made it work. I feel claustrophobic just thinking about it. Right. So Peter's father frequently beat his wife and children um, when he was drunk. When intoxicated, Peter's father often forced his wife and children to assemble before him before ordering his wife to strip naked and engage in sex with him as his children watched. And I'm sorry, this isn't sex, it's rape. Yeah. Um, so doing this, you obviously put into the minds of young children yeah. this, like, perversion. Right. Um, the father was jailed for 18 months in 1897 for repeatedly raping his eldest daughter, who was 13, and some sources stated that there was other daughters being raped. However, it's clear that this particular daughter was subjected to it the most. Shortly thereafter, Peter's mother obtained a separation order and later remarried and relocated to Dusseldorf. But at this point, the emotional and psychological damage was already done. Yeah, good for her for leaving, though. You're right. In 1892, he befriended a a local dog catcher, so like an animal control person, Mm -hmm. who lived in the same building as his family and began accompanying him on his rounds. This individual often tortured and killed the animals he caught, and Peter soon became an active and willing participant in torturing the animals. 
man when he wasn't involved in an inappropriate relationship with an older sadistic man. Um, being the eldest surviving son, Peter was the target of much of his f- father's physical abuse and frequently refused to return home from school. Although he was a very good student, he later recollected his academic performance suffered due to the extensive physical violence he endured. Um, and then from an early age, Peter often ran away from home for periods of time ranging from days to weeks. Um, so he was running with like a pretty tough crowd at this point who basically uh, showed him how to steal and uh, just commit different types of fraud just to support himself while living on the streets. And he's a child, so he doesn't right. really know what else to do. Uh, Peter later claimed to have committed his first murders at the age of nine in 1888 when he pushed a school friend who he knew was unable to swim off a log raft. When a second boy attempted to save the drowning boy, Peter held that boy's head underwater so that both boys would drown. But uh, there was... Okay, so both deaths were ruled by authorities as being accidental drownings. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't ever really... These aren't considered his first victims. Okay. Just because they thought they just drowned and there wasn't really a lot of evidence to say that he actually did do it. And who would think a nine-year-old would murder two of his friends? Mm Mm-hmm. So, at the age of 13, Peter formed a relationship with a girl his age, and although she allowed him to undress and fondle her, she would resist any attempts he made to engage in sex. Uh, To relieve his sexual urges, Peter resorted to acts of bestiality with sheep, pigs, goats, and local stables, but later claimed he obtained his greatest sense of sexual satisfaction if he actually stabbed these animals just before his climax. After discovering that this was something that he was into, he began stabbing and slashing animals with increasing frequency to achieve orgasm, although he was adamant this behavior ended when he was caught stabbing a pig. Wow. He also attempted to rape the same sister his father had earlier raped. So, just like scratching the surface of the depravity that he's about to start. In 1897, Peter left school as his drunk and abusive father wanted him to get a job as an apprentice molder. This apprenticeship lasted for two years before Peter stole all the money he could find in his house, uh, plus uh, about thou or 300 marks from his employer and ran away from home. So marks is like the currency in Germany. Right. He relocated to Koblenz where he began a brief relationship with a sex worker. He claimed that she willingly submitted every to every form of sexual perversion he demanded, which I highly doubt because he literally was stabbing pigs. So I feel like yeah. either she was complicit because she was scared or she didn't do everything he wanted her to do. Yeah. He was apprehended just four weeks later and charged with both breaking and entering and theft. 
and uh, he was sentenced to a one-month imprisonment. <laughs> wow. He was released from prison in August 1899 and uh, went back to his life of petty crime um, just before being arrested again. So, as a grown man, he was of average height and had neatly combed dark hair. Although he seemed to look like an average man, I still find his physical appearance creepy. Um, So, obviously, we're going to post pictures of our stories but you'll see what i'm saying yeah if you look at if you look at him in his mug shots he resembles a far more famous german citizen who rises to fame just a few months later um who would vastly overshadow this the crimes of peter mm. so this in turn effectively kept his brutality hidden from common knowledge because then that's when you know the nazis became a thing right uh Peter claimed to have committed his first murder in November 1899, as mentioned earlier. Sorry, 1888. However, Peter later claimed that he picked up an 18-year-old girl and persuaded her to accompany him to Hofgarden, where he claimed to have engaged in sex with her before strangling her into unconsciousness with his bare hands. Although he claims he committed this crime, there wasn't anything that supported it. If this attack did take place, the victim likely survived the assault and it was not murder. Okay. Um, Peter later stated that the incident triggered the greatest heights of sexual ecstasy that would be the only way he could satisfy his sexual needs moving forward. In 1900, Peter was arrested again for fraud. He was released, but then later that same year was arrested again for the same charge. Like, people don't learn. No. <laughs> Although, when he was rearrested the second time, it was for uh, the fraud and an additional charge in relation to an attempted murder of a girl in 1899. Peter was sentenced to four years in October of 1900 in Durendorf. Um, and then he was released again in the summer of 1904. They have really short prison sentences here, don't they? I think fraud must have not been on like their top priority of right. like offenses. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like if you're in and out that much, you should probably sit for a while. Yeah, well, wasn't there attempted murder for that one, too, though? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, however, he was drafted into the Imperial Germany Army. Uh, he was deployed to the city of Metz to serve in the 98th Infantry Regiment. This was short-lived as he basically deserted his position. Peter then began committing acts of arson which he would discreetly watch from a distance as emergency services attempted to extinguish the fires. He's just doing a little bit of everything, huh? I literally was just about to say, like, let's just add (laughs) uh, pyromania to the list of mental disturbances that he has. Yeah. So the majority of these fires were in barns and haylofts, and Peter would admit to police he had committed around 24 acts of arson upon his arrest that New Year's Eve. Wow. I honestly think he exaggerates a little bit, but that's mm-hmm. just me, because I, I think they would be able to determine if there were 24 fires they had to set 
you know? Yeah. Um, but it could have happened. I don't know. Right. He also freely admitted these fires had been committed both for his sexual excitement and in hope of burning sleeping tramps alive, just in case there were women in the barns. Oh. This indicated that he simply was not an arsonist, but received sexual gratification from the fires, making it uh, pyromania. Okay. Um, it also showed that he was he had a hatred for women, which doesn't really make sense to me since his father was the fucking asshole in this whole story. So, like, what did his mom do? Or, like, what did a woman do? Maybe his father just, like, ingrained that into him, that women just were worthless. Right. I don't know. Which sucks. Like, you... I don't know. I'm not even going to try to get into that one. In 1905 to 1913, he was imprisoned in Munster once again as his actions caught up with him as he was tried by the military court and was convicted of desertion in addition to multiple counts of arson, robbery, and attempted robbery. Oh, so they finally were like, "Mm, you need to sit a little longer this time. I'm going to disappoint you. Okay. He spent a lot of his time in uh, solitary confinement for repeated instances in insubordination. He later claimed to investigators and psychologists that this period of incarceration was that in which he first encountered severe forms of discipline and as such the erotic fantasies he had early had earlier developed uh, while incarcerated expanded to include graphic fantasies of him striking out at society and killing masses of people. Oh. So him being incarcerated did not offer any reform. Um, In fact, the punishment that he went through was only triggering him um, to want to act more violently if he were to be released. Solitary confinement is not a good punishment. Yeah. Um, So these fantasies became even more prominent and overbearing in his mind, and the visions of a mass killing would oftentimes be sparked by thinking of a naked woman. Which, I don't know how that works, but okay. He thinks of a naked woman and then he wants to murder people? Yes. (laughs) Which is like, a a woman's physical form is beautiful, so calm down. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, I mean, to each their own, I guess. No. No? (laughs) No, not him. Not him. Okay. So, the first murder, Peter definitively committed occurred on May 25th, 1913. During the curse, um, curse, course of a burglary at a tavern in Mulheim M. Run, he encountered a nine-year-old girl named Christine Klein asleep in her bed. There wasn't a lot of information on how he came across Christine in her bed, so that was a little bit unclear. Mm. Um, Peter strangled, um, her then slashed her twice across the throat with a pocket knife and then he ejaculated as he heard the blood dripping from her wounds wow literally the very next day peter specifically returned to drink in that very same tavern um and he wanted to hear the locals reaction to the murder he derived an extreme sense of gratification from the general disgust and repulsion and outrage he had heard 
in the conversations. And after Christine's funeral, Peter occasionally traveled to Mulheim am Ren to visit her grave, adding that when he handled the soil covering the grave, he spontaneously ejaculated. And I would want to say, take notes, investigators. If a strange man is visiting a child's grave every once in a while after she was brutally murdered, maybe take a look at that guy. Yeah, yeah. Be a little suspicious. Yeah. I would definitely be suspicious. Of this man. Yeah. Bottling soil. What the fuck are you here for? Right. Who are you? Sir? <laughs> Sir, why are you playing with the soil at this grave? Yes. I, uh, that would have raised questions for me. That's so creepy. Yeah. Two months later, again in the course of committing a burglary with the aid of a skeleton key. I don't know why that was important, but here you go. Hmm. Um, Peter broke into a home in Dusseldorf. Upon breaking in, he noticed a 17-year-old girl named Gertrude Franken asleep in her bed. Peter manually strangled the girl, ejaculating at the sight of blood spouting from her mouth, then left as he uh, did when he murdered Christine. Peter managed to escape from the scene undetected. The thing is, Gertrude survived. She was strangled nearly to death and then said, fuck no, this is not the last of me, and she survived. Awesome. Just days after the attempted murder of Gertrude on July 14th, Peter was arrested for a series of arson attacks and burglaries. He was sentenced to six years, although his repeated instances of insubordination while imprisoned extended his sentence by two years. Peter served this sentence in a military prison in the town of Brig, and then he was released in April of 1921. Peter relocated to Altenburg where he initially lived with his sister, you know, the sister he raped and after his father raped her. She let him move in? Mm Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Through his sister, Peter became acquainted with a woman named Auguste Scharf. He was, or she was a sweet shop, and I wanted to say sweatshop, but it's sweet shop proprietor, Mm -hmm. and a former sex worker, which I'm like, I feel like in this time, sex work was way more open and more of a thing just because not that the work is easier but like you can do it more i guess i don't know what i'm trying to say do you know what i'm trying to say i think there was places that you could just go and it was common knowledge that there were sex workers and you could like go to the brothel and Mm -hmm. find a sex worker Mm -hmm. i don't know if it was a crime then I I mean, I didn't. I don't think so. But I don't and I know. I mean, there's places in Europe, but in like in Canada, it's still not. So. Right. Right. Because sex work's pretty prevalent in America. We just pretend it's not. Right. Which you know, I'm for sex work if that's something that you are doing voluntarily and right. being safe about and getting checked up on as. Yeah. Uh, you know, medically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, so she was a former sex worker who had previously been convicted of shooting her fiancé to death. Oh. And to whom Peter initially posed as a former prisoner of war. So she was 
also kind of fucked up. Yeah. Two years later, Peter and Auguste uh, got married. It was said they had a pretty healthy sex life. There wasn't a lack of it in their marriage. However, Peter, as a true sadist, was never fully satisfied. Hmm. Peter would only fantasize about committing violence against another individual in order to get off. So much so that after their wedding night, he engaged in sex with his wife only at her invitation as it was not interesting enough for him. Peter at this point got an actual job and he became an active trades union official. Although with the exception of his wife, he formed no close relationships. In 1925, he returned with his wife to Dusseldorf, where he soon began affairs with a servant girl named Tidy and a housemaid named Metch. Both women were frequently subjected to partial strangulation when they submitted to sex with him, uh, with Tide once being told by Peter that this is what love means. Wow. No, motherfucker. It, that does not. Let me strangle you real quick, and then you tell me <laughs> how that feels. It's interesting to me that he didn't want to harm his wife. Right. And he, like, was not like, let's do these things. Yeah. No. <laughs> Maybe he, like, felt some type of way for her, but That's I honestly... I mean. After all of this, like, depravity, he just had, like one soft spot for his wife which i don't understand because i feel like with this type of person i thought it's just like across the board you don't have any fucking feelings i don't know that's why it's interesting yeah so when his wife discovered his infidelity tidy reported uh peter to the police and claimed he had seduced her uh metch alleged peter had raped her which Mm. i believe the more serious charge was later dropped Fortunately enough, Tidy's allegations were pursued, and this led Peter to an eight-month prison sentence for seduction and threatening behavior. You go to prison for, for seduction? seduction? Yeah, so watch I'm out. I'm glad that's not a crime anymore. I know. <laughs> Could you imagine? I'd be, like, thrown in prison. <laughs> right. Straight to prison for us. <laughs> yep, you're gonna go. Um, Peter only served six months of the sentence, uh, with early release being upon the condition he left the town of Dusseldorf. Like, okay, you can get out, but we don't want you here seducing people. (laughs) Right. Uh, He later successfully appealed the ruling that he had to relocate from the city. He was like, they don't want me here, but I'm going to stay anyway. Hmm. Uh, So let's fast forward to February 3rd, 1929, only four years after this last imprisonment. Peter stalked an elderly woman named Apollonia Kun. Uh, Peter waited until she was out of plain sight from potential witnesses behind bushes. He then jumped on her, grabbing her by the lapels of her coat and shouted the words, don't scream. Mm -hmm. Literally, you're shouting at somebody, don't scream. And I'm like, people can hear you. Right. Yeah. I will scream, sir. I will scream. (laughs) You're screaming. Yeah. Like you calm down, sir. (laughs) He then dragged her into a nearby undergrowth where he proceeded to stab her 24 times with a sharpened pair of scissors. Although many of the blows were inflicted so deeply that the scissors struck her bones, this badass beast survived her injuries. Oh my god. It seems that the scissors he used on Apollonia were used on other victims as well. 
So it was like his go-to weapon. Mm. On February 8th, five days after Apollonia's attack, uh, Peter strangled a nine-year-old girl named Rosa Oliger. Oliger. Sorry, yeah, these these names are really tricky for me. Yeah. Um, Into unconsciousness before stabbing her in in the stomach, temple, genitals, and her heart with a pair of the same scissors. Oh, wow. And I know I don't have to tell you this, but yes, he spontaneously ejaculated um, when he was stabbing this little girl. Um, So this is an extra alert that this is going to be really gross. Then he placed his semen into her manually with his fingers afterwards, which makes zero sense to me because now you're leaving evidence willingly. And I don't get that. What do you get from doing that? I don't get any of this stuff (laughs) he's doing. I know. I know. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. So Peter then made minimal effort to hide Rosa's body by dragging it beneath the hedge before returning to the scene with a bottle of kerosene um, several hours later and setting the child's body on fire. And yes, he orgasmed at this as well. I don't need to tell you that, but I will because it's factual. Rosa's body was found beneath a hedge the following day. So, like I said, it wasn't very hidden, even though he did take the extra step to burning her. Um, Again, five days later, on February 13th, Peter murdered a 45-year-old mechanic named Rudolf Scheer in the suburb of Flingen Nord stabbing him 20 times particularly around the head back and his eyes why is he stabbing men now we'll get into that okay following the discovery of rudolph's body peter had already returned to the scene of the crime to chit chat with police falsifying and um information and as he told one detective that he heard about the murder via telephone Despite the differences in age and sex of these victims, the fact that all three crimes had been committed in the Flingern district of Dusseldorf at the same time, and that each victim was viciously stabbed in rapid succession, along with the absence of common motive, this led investigators to suspect and ultimately conclude that the it was done by the same perpetrator, um, and that this was really huge because this was the early 1900s, meaning that the term serial killer was not something that was really heard of or ever really encountered. Right. So I I applaud these investigators because they weren't like, nah, can't be it. Right, like they do today. Right. Um, So although Peter did attempt to strangle four women between March and... July 1929, one of whom he claimed to have thrown into the Rhine River, he is not known to have killed any further victims until August 11th when he raped, strangled, and stabbed a young woman named Maria Hahn. Peter had first encountered Maria, whom he described as a girl looking for marriage. How was she? She was just walking around with a sign? 
Right. And like I'm like, looking for marriage. Who the fuck cares? Like with you're, a serial killer? You're you should have a sign that says looking for destruction. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> On August eighth and um he had arranged to take her on a date to Neanderthal district of Dusseldorf the following Sunday. After several hours of hanging out with her, he lured into her into a meadow to kill her. Ooh. He later admitted uh, he that she had repeatedly asked to spare her life while he was strangling her and stabbing her in the chest and head and while he sat next to her while she just fought to stay alive. So he literally heard her pleading and just watched her die for about an hour. He then buried her body in a cornfield, only to return to her body several weeks later with the intention of nailing her decomposing remains to a tree in a mock crucifixion. However, Marie's remains... Or Maria, sorry... uh, remains proved to be too heavy for him to complete this act. He returned her corpse to her grave. <laughs> the look on your face. <laughs> just like, what? He's just like, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. It seems like every day he wakes up like, what can I add to this depravity that I have going on here? Because none of this is enough. I think he... This is what my thing is. I think that once you achieve something so horrible... As in rape. That's terrible, right? Mm-hmm. That soon does not is not enough. So then you move on to murder. Okay, terrible. Mm-hmm. But then you do it so many times that you're like, okay, I'm bored. I can't relate to that. I'm just right. saying. Yeah. And then you're like, how do I kick this up a notch? Mm-hmm. I do this, I do that. And I think this is where he was at. Yeah, that's definitely what it seems like. Um. Okay. He returned to her corpse to her grave if you can even call it that uh, before embracing and caressing the decomposing body according to peter's later confession both before and after he had attempted to impale her corpse to a tree he stated quote went to the grave many times and kept mo- kept improving on it and every time i thought of what was lying there and what was filled and was filled with satisfaction so he every single time that he visited her or any time that he did something so depraved, I think he was just getting off, no matter what. Yeah. So three months after Peter had murdered Maria, he posted an anonymous letter to the police in which he confessed to the murder, adding that her remains had been buried in a field. And I honestly believe that these types of people do this for two reasons and i'm not an expert this is just an uneducated opinion Mm -hmm. number one to relive and to get credit for what he has done as the sensation during his crime is gone now right and uh, number two to maybe end the madness to get caught yeah i don't know I think he liked to hear people talking about it. That's true, too. Like, he went back to the bar, so nobody knows he did it. How can they talk about it? Right. That's true, too. Yep. Excellent point. So, in the letter, Peter drew a crude map describing the location of the remains, and it actually did help investigators to locate the body um, on November 15th. 
Peter, after this murder, changed his choice of weapon from scissors to a knife. In an effort to convince police, more than one perpetrator was responsible for the series of assaults and murders. On August 21st, he randomly stabbed an 18-year-old girl, a 30-year-old man, and a 37-year-old woman in separate attacks. All three were seriously wounded and all stated to police their assailant had never spoken a word to them before he attacked them. So it was just a crazy man stabbing these people randomly out in the open. That's insane. Three days later, at a fairground in the suburb of Flehe, mm -hmm, he was watching... And you know, if you're German, please correct me. <laughs> but I, it's F-L-E-H-E, Flehe, right? Yeah, sure. Um, he was watching two foster sisters, age 5 and age 14, walk from the fairground um, going home. The oldest sister, Louise Lenzen, was on an errand to purchase cigarettes for him and left Gertrude behind with him. There's a lot of Gertrudes in this story. Yeah. Peter, then being alone with this young child, Gertrude Hammaker, um, lifted her by the neck and strangled her into unconsciousness before cutting her throat and discarding her body in a patch of runner beans. When Louise returned to the scene, Peter partially strangled her before stabbing her in the torso uh, with one wound piercing her aorta. He also bit and cut her throat before sucking her blood from the wounds, the open wounds. Oh, this is when he starts being a vampire? Yes, this is vampire mode now. Uh, neither girl had been sexually assaulted, so that was also kind of unusual for him. Right. The next fucking day, Peter assaulted a 27-year-old housemaid named Gertrude Schult, whom he openly asked to engage in sex with him. She was like, um, no, get the fuck away from me. Um, that's not verbatim, but that's what I would say she would say. Right, because uh, that's so random. Right. So then Peter shouted back, well, die then, before he stabbed her in the head, neck, shoulder, and backs. Gertrude survived her injuries, although she was unable to provide investigators with a clear description of Peter beyond assuming his age to be around 40. Peter attempted to murder two further victims, one by strangulation, another by stabbing in September, before opting to exclusively use a hammer in his murders. On September 30th, Peter encountered a 31-year-old housekeeper named Ida Reuter at Dusseldorf Station. He successfully persuaded Ida to accompany him to a cafe, then for a walk through the local Huffgarten close to the, the Rhine River. As he lured her to the river, he repeatedly struck her over the head with a hammer, both before and after he raped her. At one stage in this assault, Ida regained her consciousness and began pleading for her life. He ignored her cries and continued to hammer in her head. And she, yes, she did pass away. On October 11th, he encountered a 22-year-old housekeeper named Elizabeth Dorier outside a the theater. He did the same routine as he did with Ida, 
Uh, and unfortunately, Elizabeth agreed to go with him to a cafe to get a drink um, before the pair took a train to Grafenberg. Um, and then they took a walk alongside the Kleinel-Dusel River. Wow, that's tough. <laughs> uh, he struck her once across her right temple with a hammer, then raped her. Peter struck her repeatedly about the head and both temples of her, with his hammer and then left her for dead. She was found at 6.30 a.m. the following morning in a coma. The following day, she died from her injuries uh, without awakening from her coma. On October 25th, Peter attacked two women with a hammer. Uh, likely both women survived this attack, though, because it, there was no murders reported. Oh, wow. I, can, I don't know how you can just survive a hammer attack. Like, that's just so brutal. It is. Even if it was only due to Peter's hammer-breaking mid-attack, um, that's why it, I guess it wasn't a full-on murder, because that happened. Okay. On November 7th, 1929, Peter encountered a five-year-old girl named Gertrude Alberman in the Flingern district of Dusseldorf. He persuaded the child to accompany him to a section of deserted allotment where he took her by the throat and strangled her, st stabbing her once in the left temple with a pair of scissors. Uh, Gertrude then collapsed to the ground without a sound but that didn't stop him from continuing to stab her 34 times in the temple and chest before placing her body in a pile of nettles close to a factory wall. And this is where I'm going to leave you this week. <laughs> You're here so <laughs> tense right now. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I know it was, it was a lot, and I appreciate you being here with me. But next week, it's going to be a lot better. This is going to be the investigation port, part. Port. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, and obviously, you know that he was executed, so he is going to get tried. So this was the nitty-gritty of it. Okay. It's like he just killed somebody every fucking day. Seriously. Seriously. I'm guessing his wife left him after the... Who knows? Like, are they still... I, is he still married right I, I think he was. She's just, like, at home making dinner. I, maybe it was, like, a situation where he's, like... She obviously found out that he was having an affair, but it was more right. like him raping girls, women. Yeah. Um, and probably was like, okay, you do, you get away from me. Yeah. And then let him do, go and do whatever he wanted to do. Well, I mean, she shot her previous fiancé, so I'm just wondering why she didn't just kill him. I don't know. <laughs> I so I many questions. I yeah. have a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, you did a great job. Thank That's you. So much information. Lots of information. But I, you know, I know it's not based in Wisconsin. Right. Um, but the tie was enough for me. Sorry yeah. if that's disappointing to you guys, Wisconsin no. listeners. Um, but it's a crazy story, and I it felt is. that it, everybody should know about it. Yeah, because I didn't know about it at all. Right. Great job. Thank you. Okay, well, that is it for me this week. <laughs> all right. We love you guys. We love you. Bye. Bye.
All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't Don't forget, forget, we we love you. you.